Hello everyone and thank you very much for tuning in to another episode of Max Talks AI. Uh, please, before we start the show, please accept my apologies for taking my time with releasing this episode, but I promise that it will not disappoint you. In the episode, I'm joined by Sam Sadden, who is the IBM Sports and Entertainment Sponsorship Lead for the UK. This currently covers IBM's partnerships with Wimbledon and England Rugby. He's responsible for the technical delivery to showcase IBM's industry lead in technology and also the marketing activation around the partnerships. Sam works in collaboration with his clients to deliver innovative technical solutions to support their business objectives and marketing campaigns. At Wimbledon, Sam has responsibility for managing the client relationship for all the services that IBM provides to the championships as part of their role as official IT provider to the club. This includes a team of 180 people at peak during the fortnight, from capturing data from the court side to media services, security systems, and all digital platforms. In 2015, Sam was recognized by Innovation Age as being one of the UK's top 50 data leaders and influencers. 2017 awards include Best Digital Experience, Use of AI Machine Learning, and Digital Innovation of the Year. Special thanks to IBM for inviting me to their offices in London, uh, where Sam and I had an amazing conversation about advertising in sports, the role of artificial intelligence in the delivery of sporting tournaments, and what it takes to break into the industry for a graduate. For all the sports fans out there, this is an absolute must listen, and I really hope that the next uh, hour and a half proved to be very educational and entertaining for you. Happy listening. Hello listeners and welcome to Max Talks AI. Today I'm joined by Sam Sadden. Hi Sam. Hello. First, thank you very much for hosting me at uh, IBM. Are these headquarters? These, this is our, uh, our central London office, our official headquarters actually, Portsmouth. Yeah. Okay, got it. First, for the context of the listeners, this place is super beautiful. I had the best walk. I did get lost trying to find the main entrance, but uh, let's leave it at that. Uh, the first question, I've been preparing for this interview quite a lot because you have done quite a lot about many things that are pretty interesting. But I would like to start with the travel. And uh, in one of your interviews, I saw that you are quite a fan of traveling and going to different places. So if you yeah. could give some context on that. Yeah, I've always just been quite inquisitive and like getting around. I like mountains. So uh, traveling these days is sort of going up to the north of Scotland, going to the Isle of Skye. And, they're going uh, to the French and Swiss Alps, my summer holidays. Mm-hmm. But I got into traveling just when I was younger. I just liked getting out and seeing new places. So um, I did a break when I was at university and did a round the world trip with a friend and the kind of Asia, Australia. Okay, what specifically, which countries? Uh, then I went to Thailand and then Hong Kong, Australia, Hawaii in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've done things like, um, I've been to Malaysia a couple of times. Um, I went to South Africa in 1993, which was just after, a, in between Nelson Mandela coming out of prison and the first elections, I did, ran a, a sports tour to South Africa, which I think was one of the first hockey tours to South Africa post-apartheid. Um, so I just like going and experiencing new places, really. Uh-huh. What about uh, some of the places you've been to lately, or a place that you really didn't think much of, but then when you went there, you were like, oh, wow, this is really cool. Any place that exceeded your expectations in this way? Um, I'm not sure that... Um, difficult one to answer. I mean, I had, uh, I had a great honeymoon. I had a 10-week honeymoon mm-hmm. where I went traveling around um, Peru and Ecuador, um, popped into Bolivia for a little bit, and then went to the Galapagos. Um, and I think the, the travel around the Galapagos was really interesting. You know, not that many people get to go 
um, was on a boat for a week and doing scuba diving as well as getting off and wandering around the islands. That was that was pretty special. Mm-hmm. Then, do you think if you kind of uh, put on your kind of consultant business hat on, uh, do you think there is a, a clear move from the asset kind of uh, buying patterns of consumers to, as they say, experiential consumptions, and it's more about really the experiences that you buy rather than, for example, like a new watch or a new car and things of that nature? Um, yeah, I think there's, there's, there's different types of different people, aren't there? There were some people that will live their life, you know, having to buy the, the most up-to-date whatever it is, whether that's a phone, a watch, a car, a TV, whatever. And, and that's how they value things. And then, but I think the the prevalence of an explosion of social media, and you know, particularly things like Instagram, and and, and um, allowing people to see and experience places elsewhere, um, is making people want to have more of those experiential opportunities. Sometimes because they just want the memory, sometimes because they just want to show people where they are. Um, and I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, you, you do get a certain amount of you know, social media generally is rose tinted. Um, and people like to present a rose-tinted view of their life and views and all the rest of it. So, yeah. um, which you know, it's just fine. We want to just see the nice bits, but there are other bits as well. Do, do you think is this because I think there is a case to be made that potentially some people would go to places just in order to post a picture from that, or they would go to concerts just in order to you know take a video and yeah. kind of tell their friends that this is the case. Do you think there is any? adverse kind of effects connected to that or is this just where the society is going and there is nothing wrong with being a kind of PR agent of yourself? Um, I think there's something that's something that potentially gets lost which is what my wife refers to as being in the moment. Mm -hmm. So the word that I do at Wimbledon is quite intense and I go through what um, I think April to June my wife refers to as the delay period because she'll ask me a question and at some point she'll get an answer which may or may not relate to the question that she first asked and that's because I'm so consumed by what I'm doing that I'm not in the moment I'm not experiencing what's going on around me whether that's you know my kids wanting to play or whatever it is Um, and I think that trait is becoming more prevalent with people in general when you know a lot of how we consume and interact now is through a digital device we spend a lot of our time looking down at something not necessarily looking up and putting it in our pocket and just going, it is a lovely day. Or even if it is a lovely day, I want to tell everybody it's a lovely day. Yeah, and you know, you can go and see. Um, I think there's some classic photos you go and look on the internet of things like people in um, uh, St Peter's Square in in Vatican City, mm-hmm. there for for a Vatican Mass and. You take a photo of, you see a photo of that from 20 years ago, and it's everybody sort of in the moment experiencing it. If you take a photo now, 50% of the people in the crowd will have the phone up, mm-hmm. and they're videoing the experience. And partly that's because they want to capture that memory, partly because it's what they want to share. But you, that translates into you go to a festival these days, or you go to a music event. A lot of people will be in the moment, but experiencing it through a screen that's in front of their yeah. face, yeah. not dropping the screen and seeing what's going on behind the screen. And that's you know a, a trait of modern society is that people are beginning to get more self-worth through how other people experience them and interact through digital media. And then what about in in your work kind of in sports and media and entertainment? You can also see that shift. I mean, quite clearly. Yeah. Do you change the way you, for example, approach 
you know, and we, we're going to get into the nitty gritties of Wimbledon a bit later, which I'm looking forward to very much. But do you change the way you approach the consumer side experience of a sporting tournament, having those in mind, you know, people experience it through the phone? Do you try to kind of embrace that? Or do you try to bring it more kind of old school and trying to get people off the phones, which might not be commercially the best? Um, yeah, I mean, Ultimately, any business has got to think about what's its audience, what's its consumer want. And if you're not tailoring what you need to your consumer audience, then you know, you're going to fail. There, you know, if you look at the British um, high street at the moment, um, there's been a lot of failures in the last 12 months, two years, because people have lost focus on what is important to the consumer and aren't able to differentiate themselves. You know, sport is no different. Um, you know, ultimately, they're selling a product. The product is two people batting a ball over a net or it's 11 people running around after a piece of leather or whatever it is, it's a product that's got to be sold to an audience. Um, so if you forget and you're not tailoring what you need to your audience, then you're going to lose out. And I think the challenge in sport is there's a huge proliferation of content and product mm -hmm. and there are very different ways to consume it. Um, whether that's physically at the event or whether that's in a bar with your friends or whether that's at home watching it on the television or whether that's consuming it live or via catch-up on a train. There are multiple different ways that you can consume the product and I think that is a particular challenge in sport. There aren't many other businesses that have that demographic spread mm -hmm. and location and geographic spread with the levels of competition. So I think that's one of the things that I find fascinating about sports business and the technology component of it is it is so varied. You know, you've got to cater for somebody who's eight and 88 mm -hmm. all at the same time in multiple different locations, which mm -hmm. is quite challenging. What about then, let's, let's talk a bit about the kind of geography of it, because what I feel is that maybe there is some case to be made that um, People are not as much in the moment, but then I think on the flip side, in that net, there is much more positive gain in terms of the scalability of an event such as Wimbledon or such as rugby or anything of that nature. You know, any big sporting event now can potentially have the reach of people who have never even been interested in this sport, but just because of the way they do their digital and how entertaining it is or how educational or anything along those lines, you can actually reach very you know, broad audiences and in potentially in different countries. Do you, do you see it the same way? And do you think there is potential for sports to gain new fans and then for them to kind of become active participants through something like social media posts or just uh, interest in digital content? Yeah, I mean, the, the use of digital has, you know, transformed a lot of sports, a lot of sports potential. Can you provide an example? So if you, th if you look at what um, the BBC are doing, for example, with their sports rights, um, if you looked at what they had on uh, that was free to air via the BBC a decade ago, yeah. and you look at what they've got now from a broadcast perspective, very, very different set of rights. Um, what, th what they have done is they, you know, partly that's been a financial thing, you know, their, their, their budgets have been squeezed, mm -hmm. partly that is because there's a lot more competition in the marketplace. So, um, you know, social media platforms uh, are streaming, you know, Amazon obviously come into the market quite recently. Um, you've got Twitter that would live stream, you've got Facebook that are doing it. So the competitive landscape is a lot broader. But what the, what the BBC have done, which I think is quite interesting, is they've 
they've taken a step back from a traditional linear production approach, media production approach. So whilst they've got free to air, they've also got their digital platforms. And increasingly the digital platforms are taking over as a, as an, as a focal point for some of their um, new rights. So um, women's football, what they're doing with um, what we'll call, I don't want to use it, it's not a derogatory term, but more minority sports mm -hmm. that they're starting to stream through their BBC digital platform mm -hmm. so you can go and access those there. And I think that's going to be really interesting, particularly in the sphere of women's sport, because that's a lot of where they're focusing is on those sports. The rights fees are much smaller. Mm -hmm. There is a significant interest and I think, I hope, what that will do will allow those sports to grow. So through more visibility of those sports, through seeing the quality of them, mm -hmm. more commercial partners will get on board, more people will want to get engaged. Um, my, my fear in all of it is that just because you're seeing a sport doesn't mean you're wanting to participate in it. Um, and there's a real challenge, continuing challenge in, in most countries, I think, which is how do you continue to drive participation um, and, and, and an uptick, say, Tennis and the LTA is a good example, you know, should have been riding the crest of a wave of Andy Murray and Johanna Conte and, and so on, getting involved in the sport, but they haven't seen a corresponding uplift in their yeah. base um, people coming out and playing on a Saturday. Do, do you think that's kind of the, the ultimate goal then of, of sports and sports events to actually get people out and to get people to play? Because to me, I think maybe in terms of the consumer experience, you, you perhaps can try to reconcile the entertainment bit of the sport and the, you know, much larger kind of cultural and, and social part of what sport actually is and what it was, you know, originally kind of in, invented for. Um, well, there's, there's various different roles and responsibilities within the sporting landscape that are somewhat overlapping and not always aligned. So if you take football as an example, you know, it's not Manchester United's job to get more people playing football. No. It, it isn't. Their, their are job you, are is you, are to. You from originally? Just near there, yeah. Uh, do you support Man uh, I don't actually support any football team really. I've managed to avoid all of that. I'm quite, which I'm quite pleased about. Okay. So I just I follow it, but I don't support a team. All right. Um, you know, their, their job is they're a business. Their job is to generate eyeballs on on brands and um, use their product of eleven people running around the pitch in order to do that. Mm -hmm. um, They've got, they will have some community outreach, absolutely, of course they will, and, and they'll be trying to support it, but ultimately they're not trying to grow the game of football in England. Mm -hmm. um, that's the FA's job. That's the FA's job. Um, and the LTA. Um, LTA for tennis. Wimbledon's job, you know, again, they've got Wimbledon Foundation and they've got Road to Wimbledon and they've got the Junior Tennis Initiative and they do a lot in the community, but ultimately their job is not to grow the game of tennis in, in Britain. Mm -hmm. You know, they promote it absolutely and they support all of that but that's the LTA's job um, so th there are there aren't that many organizations that have a dual job of top-end professional elite sport and participation even within the governing bodies within within the UK you know we've got a performance angle which drives team GB and all the success there but they're disconnected from the responsibility for growing those sports and there's a natural tension there some of which is you see with you know for example basketball um, which had a lot of support in terms of um, run up to 2012 Olympics and then all of that was withdrawn because they weren't successful in winning a medal which had has a significant impact on their ability to attract and grow the base level of basketball in the UK which is needed in order to be performing so there is a certain amount of 
um, misalignment of all of the different parties in terms of how do you grow a base in order to provide the professionals that are the entertainment element that provide the interest that grow the base and there aren't many sports that have got that um, working fully effectively. I think maybe one of them that you could look at would be something like rowing um, that maybe do that quite well. Um, I was reading some stuff yesterday actually about uh, the Leander Club in Henley which is where a lot of the um, Great British, uh, Great Britain uh, rowing team grew up, so where um, Pinson and Redgrave were as a club. And they took an approach back in the 80s, which was ahead of the national governing body in terms of how they were going to focus on top-end elite in order to maintain the club and the ethos and, and help grow. And I think they've done it as a sport quite well. Um, Can we just go for, for a second back to broadcasting? Uh, in my research for this interview, I have stumbled upon Wimbledon Broadcast Services and there was an explanation how BBC switched from, I mean, I guess in layman's terms, doing everything themselves to having the Wimbledon Broadcast Services, so they reshuffled the broadcasting strategy. Could you just elaborate on this a bit? Just Yeah, sure. So um, up until 2017, um, the BBC were responsible for the physical infrastructure of putting on a TV production at Wimbledon. So they were responsible for managing the laying of TV cables, for the placement of TV cameras, and for the capturing of the content on the side of the court. And then they took that feed themselves as the domestic broadcaster, and they also provided that feed to international broadcast. What um, happened this year is um, Wimbledon have set up their own broadcast business, Wimbledon Broadcast Services. So they are now responsible for laying all the cables and the placement of the cameras and the capturing of the content. And they provide that content then to all of their broadcasters, domestic, that's BBC, but ESPN, Channel 7, Star, etc. Um, it's a similar model to what the IOC do. Um, so they've got their own broadcast business and there were a few other large sports organisations that have taken the same direction. The reason that they do that is because by owning the capture of the content and the mechanism by which it is captured, they can make a decision to do new things and try new services. Um, and an example of that would be this year, you might have spotted there was a camera in the net mm -hmm. at Wimbledon, so you could see the players approaching for a volley. Yeah. Wimbledon can now choose to do that. The BBC don't have to show it if they don't want to. Other broadcasters might choose to, but Wimbledon can choose to do it. So Wimbledon can look across all of their broadcast partners and say, how can we provide a better service to you? How can we innovate? How can we do new things that are going to present Wimbledon in a new light? They no longer have to negotiate with the BBC to input, install that camera on the net and pay for it. They own it themselves. So if they want to go 4K across all of their courts, 4K broadcast, or if they want to put in a, not that they would, put in a spider cam, or they can choose to do that and then provide that content for others to pick up. Um, that does two things for them. It means that they own the quality of the content creation and they own how their brand, how their product is perceived. It also means that because they're capturing all of that content themselves and they can choose where, they, where and how they distribute it. So they're starting to think in a more um, horizontal way in terms of their content creation and distribution. So rather than I've got linear TV and I've got web content and I've got social media content, yeah. it's kind of, I've got content that I can distribute to any of these channels. And if you think of it in a more integrated way, 
and it's just a question of how big's the how big's the digital device that I'm distributing this on. There are different options and opportunities depending on how big your screen is. Um, but if you think of it in an integrated way, you can create opportunities to um, have a more consistent look and you can create opportunities to provide different insights or and take content that might have just worked here, might be a bit of information that you actually want to feed over here. So not only have they set up Women on Broadcast Services, but they physically started to co-locate their broadcast media side and their digital side, their two doors down from one another in the same complex, which I think is going to become a more integrated single editing suite. All right, so then in regards to to what you just said about the there is content, right? And then there is distribution. Yeah. Do you think this this kind of move by BBC or, you know, it doesn't have to be BBC, any any conventional TV channel or any conventional broadcaster now has to adjust to, you know, the new way that people consume content and perhaps the more fragmented way now that there is so many different channels, so many different ways of actually consume, you know, an event if you can call it that. Is it is it a necessity for those broadcasters to change their ways? And if they're not proactive, can they still survive on, you know, their kind of old, perhaps outdated model? Um so there's I think there's an interesting discussion and debate going on in the media and sports industry in general, which is around the what's the how far is the shift going to go and how what's the right potentially mix between the traditional linear i want to watch my sport live and i want to watch it on a television channel through to i want to consume it in a stream on a website through to um, a a more on-demand model so i'm actually just interested in highlights or i'm quite happy to not watch the live experience I'll watch it on catch up. And you know, a business like the BBC sort of caters for all of that already. They've got the iPlayer, they've got BBC Sport, and they've got their social channels, they've got their highlights packages, and they've got the live broadcast. Now they don't have that for everything, but that's the kind of distribution options that they've got. Um, now, obviously, they're a pretty big and well-established broadcaster, but what you're starting to see is you're, you've got strong players coming into each one of those areas. Mm-hmm. So in the, in the on-demand area, you've got you know, an Amazon coming in with an on-demand offering. In the streaming area, you've got a Facebook, which is starting to buy up rights. And in the linear, you've got all the sort of traditional broadcasters vying from fighting for rights, whether that's Sky Sports or whether that's ESPN or whether that's BBC. Mm-hmm. There aren't many people that have got the entire breadth. Yeah. But what um, if you go down to the on-demand end of the spectrum, it's a, well, why do I actually need to have a linear? Because I'm, I'll just pay for it when I want it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll consume it when I want it on my terms, not on your terms. And there were some interesting plays coming in in this place. So Perform, um, a, a sports media business, um, they're starting to create um, specific options and packages in the just in the on-demand space and in the streaming space, which are starting to compete and vie for the more traditional. I'm going to make an appointment, yeah. appointment to view. I'm going to sit down. It's two o'clock Sunday, the fifteenth of July. Yeah. It's men's final. I'm, I'm going to sit there and watch it. All on your terms yeah. and on your time frame. I think the 
to me. I mean, this is this is fascinating to me, and I think behind a lot of this is just time, the way people started valuing their time and the way they don't want to budge to, you know, to, for example, watch the ads. Even you were talking about um, uh, catch-up TV, like that was a thing before what's happening now. And that's, you know, relatively recent. Before it just used to be you just watch the TV, you just watch the channel, and then whatever comes on, comes on. Can we just talk about uh, advertising for a second? Because to me, I think live sports is one of the last places in terms of media and entertainment where advertising is still alive in a way that it was before. So that, for example, if you're watching Man's Final, if, you know, for example, a brand got lucky enough that the consumer's not on Twitter in between the sets, which probably won't happen, or if the consumer, I don't know, dropped the remote for some reason, they can't reach it, so they have to watch the ad or whatever is, is in between, then isn't live sports one of the last places where there's actually really good ROI on TV conventional ads? Um, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a, a, a media buyer and I don't sell ad space, but I can give you sort of my perspective on it. I mean, the, there's, there's ads in the breaks and then there's ads that are displayed with the product, with the content. So um, if you look at what um, you get, say, on ESPN versus um, BBC around Wimbledon, you know, ESPN will have ad breaks, BBC won't. Is there any, is there any, um, what's the value on that ad break for ESPN? Now, I think there's a more, there's a broader question, which is how much do, does a consumer actually ever focus on an ad? I mean, it's, it's surely it is decreasing. Um, I think, you know, TV ads are still obviously well valued because, you know, businesses still pay a lot of money for them. I think that they work when um, you've got a, I personally find they work for me when there's an element of humour mm. about them. You know, I would have been watching some ads last night. Can I recall any of them now? No. Yeah. I mean, it comes down to talent, right? That's always differentiating. Yeah, so whether it's within a sports segment or whether it's within a, um, whether it's in a break in EastEnders or whether it's in, you know, wherever it is, you know, you're targeting it based on the audience that you think are consuming that product. Now, increasingly, unfortunately, what you'll see if you watch a football match and you're watching it on, on a... Um, on a non-free-to-air channel, the chances are you're going to see a lot of betting ads yeah, yeah. because they, you know, they're looking at the people that are engaged in that sport and they're looking at their demographic and they're doing some very clever analytics and they're saying you know, that's, the, that's the right audience for yeah. us at this point in time. Now, I'm not entirely comfortable with that, but um, nonetheless, you know, there, is a, there is a value in it. You know, there's, if you look at it then from a placement within the experience, so if you're watching a football match you've not got to the ad breaks yet. Um, what, are, what are the brands that you're seeing and experiencing in and around that? Um, the, the, that's all, you know, the pitch side hoarding is what the players have got on the shirts and, and there are some values associated with all of that. I think um, you know, that has increased significantly in terms of what people are prepared to pay for a logo placement, which yeah. is essentially what it is. Um, I think if you looked at the 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 amount of money that has gone into sport as an industry over the last 30 to 40 years and you compared it if you if one could ever do this to all other global industry segments whether that's you know mining or retail or whatever i think you would probably see that as a percentage increase the level of 
turnover in the sports business has probably increased more than if not very close to them you know in the top five of all industries globally in the last 30 years mm -hmm. as a percentage because sports has sold itself incredibly well people want to watch it people emotionally connect with it and that's where the value is I think we're getting we must be getting to near the, the top of that rise because what you're now starting to see is there are so many brands mm -hmm. in there so Premier League football was an example has started to not just sell, sell the front of your shirt to a brand they'll, they'll sell the left sleeve yeah. and they'll sell okay you're not our match day shirt sponsor you're our practice shirt sponsor so they'll sell to organisation ABC for running around on a Saturday and they'll sell to organisation XYZ for running around on the practice field on, on a Tuesday and a Thursday. Um, so they're segmenting it so much that you know, there is inherently some value in it to somebody. The, the question I always have, which is the challenge I always have with Wimbledon, is how do I actually create a connection that is sufficient that it's not just I recognise the brand but it's that I'm making an emotional connection to, a, to an extent that I'm prepared to, to investigate that yeah. brand and ultimately spend some money with that brand. Yeah. That's quite hard to do, particularly if you're in a B2B environment. So um, a lot of the, if you think of Champions League football, a lot, of the, a lot of the brands that you see, they're very good at, they sell the Champions League as a product end-to-end -end and add slots that go with it. So you get your beer sponsor and you get your car sponsor and you get your financial services sponsor and those are the ads you always see if you're watching that starts to build brand awareness mm -hmm. how that translates into uplift in terms of you know revenue i'm sure they've done all the numbers on it um but the ultimately as a marketeer and as an advertising person what you're trying to do with paying for that placement wherever it is is create an emotional connection mm -hmm. that results in an action that action ultimately to result in a purchase whatever it is you're purchasing. Um, so for me as a B2B marketer, um, if such a thing exists any day, these days, I think even though I work for a business that sells you know, computing systems software, I would argue that we're a business to consumer organization. Um, the consumer happens to work for another business. Um, but you know, if I'm trying to sell you some artificial intelligence software, I need to connect with you on an emotional level in order for you to invest the time to investigate that product, to put your personal credibility on the line, to take it to your boss to say, we should buy this. There's an argument to say it's an even more emotional purchase than if you were to go and buy a fast car. Mm -hmm. Because that is you know, quite a rudiment rudimental, you know, you might be really into your four by fours or you might be into your front wheel drive or you might be into your two seaters, whatever. It's a relatively basal kind of emotional response. An emotional connection to technology is slightly different. It requires a lot more nurturing and a lot more personal investment. And therefore, one could argue, it's actually more of an emotional response, more of a consumer. So whilst we as IBM sometimes think of ourselves as B2B marketers, we're not, we're B2C. Interesting. Okay, then if we can talk about Wimbledon. Um, I have actually, for some, some context for you, I have actually worked at Wimbledon for three summers during my university. Mm -hmm. uh, that was back when IMG was in charge of retail. Uh, so I just worked with Babolat on certain tennis rackets. I played tennis somewhat well. 
and uh, I, I'm super in love with Wimbledon and uh, everything about Wimbledon. To me, the best Grand Slam, no competition, probably the best sporting event, also very little competition, but people argue about that, but I don't know why. Um, I was just going to say, I feel that the way Wimbledon is such a great example of doing the commercial aspect so well, so tacitly and so subtly, that it doesn't really interfere and it doesn't really annoy the consumer. I'm just wondering if you kind of share this this opinion about the the club. Yeah, I mean they are they're a, they're a special business, they're a special organisation, and it is a very special location. I'm very I was talk I was at the retirement due for the IT director. Uh, this who's just uh, left yesterday, and um, he he put it in a way that I think I've spoken to him about in the past is that we are the current custodians of our role and our relationship with the brand and the event, and we have to make the you know whatever we do we have to make it better for the person that we pass it on to um they've just had the 132nd championships they're 150 years old as a club and yet they're still striving to be better and i think the the cultural dimension of that i find fascinating i'm sort of amateur psychologist so i think the 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 embedded culture which is however well we've done it we can always do it better and it's never ending it's a continual attempt to be better although it's interesting because they are they are so traditional and they have so many things that are forever and that they're never going to change yet in those things that are variables they just want disproportionate kind of improvement yeah i mean it's it's very important for them as an event as a brand to really understand what are the things that make the place special what are the things that are quintessentially wimbledon and and guard and honour and protect those things. You know, don't, don't be shy about challenging yourself whether they, they, that should always be the way, but always understand that those core components of the traditions, you know, of the white, um, of the fact that it's always going to be on grass, you know, of the colours and, and so on. Don't lose those things, but don't let those, holding on to those things stop you innovating and being different around all the other areas. So on the one hand, they are traditional and, and perceived as such but on the other hand they're incredibly innovative um, if you look at the, you know, the the approach that they take around you know, the multi-year investment in in the site and the infrastructure and how they're changing all of that if you look at you know they're very different in terms of commercially how they think about um, monetizing their brand and that you know they could have 30 sponsors and still find more they don't they've got about 12 or 13. Um, on a very much on a less is more. Um, so the, cl the the cleanliness of the site from a brand point of view is one of their unique selling points. So if you go and you know Flushing Meadows um, kicking off on uh, 27th of August, I think it is. Um, if you go and look at that on the television screen and look at the number of brands and look at the brands around the site, totally different experience. Um, most other sporting events are like that, and it becomes a little bit overload to this point that you lose focus on even brand awareness, I think, to some extent. Mm -hmm. Do you think then that that creates just having, you know, a very, not to say exclusive, obviously, you know, there is still, there is still every now and then there is tender, there is switch, for example, from, was it Prince Rackets and now it's kind of Babble at Rackets. So new brands do pop up here and there. But to me, at Wimbledon, IBM is one of, IBM and Wimbledon is one of those partnerships where actually associate the tournament, the championships rather, with the brand. Do you think that creates a, 
a, you know a kind of a, a deeper connection in the mind of a consumer when you keep it when you, you know you keep a tight group and you really kind of embrace that and it all works you know in a in a harmony together yeah absolutely i mean um my strap line on uh, our, our marketing materials that I send to our clients and the things that we wear around our necks at Wimbledon is partnership and innovation since 1990. Um, it is truly a partnership. It is, you know, I, I consider my job with Wimbledon is to how can I make them the best tennis tournament in the world? Mm-hmm. How do I develop a case study about how IBM has helped them in that task? Um, and then very simplistically, I tell people about it. That's fundamentally what I do how can I make I, I always think of them you know yes it's a sponsorship and a partnership but I always think of them as a client how can I help my client be better every day okay can you can you talk about some of those ways how IBM makes Wimbledon better um yeah I mean, we we kind of set ourselves quite aggressive challenges so you know Wimbledon's mission is to be the best tennis tournament in the world um and they are a relatively small tennis club in southwest London. Um, they just happen to put on one of the biggest sporting events in the world. So you know, we talk about them as a business and product that they've got. A product is a tennis match and they're competing against other global broadcasters. So they have the BBC and ESPN as close partners and they work incredibly well with them. But they also, to some extent, compete with them for eyeballs. You, know, you can't watch Wimbledon, the Wimbledon channel on a live stream and ESPN at the same time. You know, you've only got one set of eyes, so which one are you going to watch? Um, so they have to have a unique selling point. So one of the, um, we have regular innovation sessions with them and we set ourselves challenges around particular business issues. And, you know, a couple of years ago, we had a classic one where it was, we want to help Wimbledon deliver content out to their fans quicker than a global media organisation. So the designing challenge we set ourselves was using data. How can we help Wimbledon break news faster than a global media organisation? So speed again. Speed um, and and our technical capabilities, people and and um, uh, technology wise. So we um, we broke that down and we created a system that live streamed all of the data coming off all nineteen courts as it was at the time. And we created some algorithms that identified key milestones and leaders. And we were able to alert Wimbledon in advance of key data points happening on their tennis courts so that they could create social media content so that they could put it out into social media and create first mover advantage of head of any global media organization. Yeah. So is, is this then where kind of the demand was and where the sweet spot is? There is a demand for speed so I want to see the highlights after the first set now not after the, the match right and then in terms of the way Wimbledon competes there is also you know kind of you know quality of the content is still a variable so like you can get something out very quickly but perhaps it's not going to be as, as good of a quality. So is this where technology comes in, especially with the video highlights work that IBM's done, making it automated and making it much quicker to actually come up with, you know, one minute kind of summary of the best shots and things yeah. of that nature. Is, is, is that where the, you know, the unique selling point is? And is that where technology is essential to actually keep up with the consumer's demand for speed? You have to implement technology. There is no other way because in some tasks, you know, as, as, uh, I've read with the journalists using, you know, say 40 minutes of their time to make those video highlights and then the IBM software is doing it in, you know, two to five or something. And then, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly the use case there. So, as you say, you know, if you're putting something out with Wimbledon's logo on it, 
the brand quality and the quality of that content is got to be top level. There is no discussion around that. So um, the, the scenario that, again, we looked at there was how can we help you produce video content quicker? Um, you know, in social media, on digital channels, those catch-up elements, those highlight elements, there is a lot of where people are going for content. You know, if you're not making an appointment to view to watch that quarter-final men's match because you happen to be in a meeting at the time because it's on during, you know, it's three o'clock in the afternoon on a Thursday, um, then, but you still want to catch up, how can I get that content to you as quickly as possible? Um, and that's where the AI highlights came in. So the, 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 the challenge there is an interesting one, which is if you take a human being out of the process of making a decision as to what is interesting, what is exciting, mm -hmm. how do you replicate that human component? And the answer that we came up with was you use different humans. You actually use the humans that are on the side of the court. How excited are they as qualified by the amount of noise they're making? Mm -hmm and you use the human beings that are running around on the court itself. How excited and engaged are they at the outcome of that particular point? Yeah. And then you use your data set to say, was it an exciting point statistically because it was 30, 40 in, and you're serving for five, six, so you hadn't, you're saving the set. So we can, you bring all those three things together, you can use a machine, you can use artificial intelligence to, to um, provide that piece of content. Um, what that does is it, it takes the human being that would have been spending two hours watching that match in order to create the highlights reel to go and look at something else. Mm -hmm. So you don't take the human out of the process, you get them higher up the value chain in terms of what they're able to do. So you could be watching that men's quarterfinal and you can leave the highlights package production to an automated process because you know it's going to get out quickly. What you get to look for there is what are the unique moments within that match that I want to get out? You know, just clip that bit and get it into social media, create maybe a different kind of narrative. So I want to create a narrative around, we just seen that, you know, that happened to be in loads and loads of drop shots in that match. Yeah. Let's create a drop shot highlights package and a match highlights package and all the clipping that I was going to do. Now one person can do all of those things. Mm -hmm. it, it's interesting because if you think about a tennis match, it's like a, a huge top level content right and then you you break it down into so many different things so that if i'm a consumer and if i have three seconds today for wimbledon i'm gonna see okay this person was it john esner uh did he make the the highest number of aces in a match ever highest number in wimbledon's history in wimbledon's history in the tournament right because he, he got pretty far yeah, so for example, I see that and this is it. Now I actually can interact with others. I know this data point, even though I didn't even bother to watch a one minute highlight, yet I still have something yeah. to actually go about and I can you know, drop in into a conversation with people. Yeah, and, and that's a good example of us working in a kind of quite an agile way, technically and um, from a process point of view with Wimbledon. So we were obviously tracking the number of aces that Isner had got and we looked at that particular match and we had a conversation with Wimbledon because we have daily meetings with them around content creation. We've got a bunch of people, we've uh, got a data scientist and a couple of tennis analysts sitting in a room. We've got a Slack channel open to the Wimbledon content digital team. We have stand-up meetings in the morning as you would with an agile project. Uh, it's what the content elements we're looking for today, here's the analysis we've done last night, what are the news stories you're going for, what data, how can we can support that. We'd spotted the ISNA opportunity as potential to get to that level. We were tracking it ace by ace during the match. Um, you know, they're able to create 
digital content specifically around those pieces of ACEs. They're getting, um, they're getting infographics ready to go as soon as he hits the 213th ACE. Um, you know, creating the content around the highlight aces and we're still creating the, ace, the match highlights for that match. So it's a real combination of, you know, you've got a bit of AI, you've got a data scientist, you've got some analytics software, you've got some Slack channels going, you've got some agile development methodology, you've got a journalist, you've got, you know, all of these people working in collaboration to produce what is seemingly a very simple thing. It's a bit of video and social media, but yeah. it's, that's what's going on behind the scenes for you to see that 30 second clip. Okay, so just wondering on the, the data points bit and, uh, and for the listeners there is, uh, I'm gonna link up the website of IBM and the pages that concern Wimbledon and all the data points that they collect so you can, you can definitely check it out. But I was just wondering, there is immense value I think to the consumer, right? You know, stats are always cool, video highlights are always great, but then I was just thinking for, for the players, especially maybe you know, the players who are not as as established or maybe the ones that are coming up, I was thinking that those those data points and the sheer amount of data that you collect and, you know, it's kind of, it's labeled and it's structured in a way that you can actually extract value from it. You can extract value about the opponent, you can extract value about your own kind of style of play, you can see what's working, what's not, basically without actually making an effort of of tracking it yourself or having any wearables because you know IBM's already done the job for you. I was just wondering in terms of the can players use that data? Do they have access? Can they request it? Or what is the status quo in that? Yeah, so we've got a system on site called the Women and Information System, mm-hmm. which has got all of the statistics that we've ever captured at Wimbledon back to 1990. So it's, I think it's got now about 58 million data points in it. Um, plus all of the match records back to 1877. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's also got match analysis video content. So for if you're playing on one of the six show courts over the last uh, five or six years, then we also have a video file um, where all of your match data is embedded in the video file. So if you just want to go and mm. see your, your unforced errors or your break points, you can literally just jump to all of those components in the video. Is it just to interject, is it available for juniors or...? Uh, so the data is provided for juniors as well, yeah. So that's available on site, but we also we have a, we built a personalised website for the players uh-huh. um, called the Player Website, um, and that's built on our sort of Bluemix um, platform. So it provides lots of access to various different services that we've got, um, and we provide access to um, their match data. Their video file is sent to them. They get a personalised order of play. So as soon as the order of play is out, they get a push notification to their mobile device telling them that you're playing third on whatever court, whatever it is, so that they can start to prep their day the next day. They get that notification before it goes out into the public. They get access to their racket stringing information, how much they've spent on their food, where they are with their prize money, all of this information in one place. So basically, as soon as they've come off court, they will get a match analysis report. Um, which is all of their tactics, all of their you know, serve percentages, all the way down to their individual point trails. Um, and then they also get the video file. So pretty much by the time they got off court, back and out of the shower, that's all sitting there waiting for them to analyze as soon as they come That is so impressive. And what, what kind of feedback are you getting from the players on that? Yes, I mean, we know they use it a lot. We know that they, and we can see the records of who's logged into the website and, and been accessing it. We know that um, it's a key component for any coach in terms of preparing a player for the next 
for the next event. So, you know, they're going in against player B and they've got various tactics that they're going to try in order to win. You know, that analysis report will show the coach immediately whether or not they executed on the game plan, whether they shifted from plan A to plan B set by set, because it's all broken down by sets as well. So um, it's quite a rich set of analytical information. Do they, just thinking about, are there any, any limitations on using that data? For example, can a player say, you know, I don't want my data about my shots and things of that nature shared with other players for competitive purposes or anything else? Or is it all kind of available in this manner? So the data is available in the system on site, so any player can go in and have a look at it. Uh, we don't provide, we provide a bespoke service, so if you came in and said, you know, can you tell me what I did here, there and wherever, then we can provide that to you. We don't provide bespoke service on your competitor, so, yeah. you, so you can come in and say, I want to know everything about Fred, who I'm playing tomorrow. Yeah. Um, and the r rationale for that is that we, they want a very level playing field, so you might have all the backing of your tennis federation and 15 people around you and a performance analyst and a data scientist yeah. and I, I might be on my own yeah. um, and, and it's just me. Now, is it therefore fair that you get all of that analysis that, and, and data at Wimbledon when I haven't and the, the route that Wimbledon have taken is it's a level playing field, everyone gets access to the same level of information. Um, what you're able to do in your performance coaching and your preparations and the rest of it, that's you know, up to you and obviously people earn more money than others and you know one of the things they'll reinvest in is their coaching staff and you know Carl Edmonds has done a significant amount of that and how he's invested in his team as part of his development to get him to where he is now. Mm -hmm. What about then if we, on, on, on a more general point, what do you think, because to me I see a lot of statistics in sports, a lot of uh, actually some machine learning stuff, some big data analysis in terms of individual players and team performances. And then uh, some people might say that some of the, with the statistical analysis, similarly to the strength of the players and the conditioning, you know, you used to have, uh, you know, frankly, players that are physically not on par with the players that we have now. And um, a lot of people are being romantic about those times and saying, oh, tennis used to be like that. And now it's, you know, it's all about height, it's all about the serve, it's all about power. And some of that kind of finesse, some of the more tacit parts of the game are gone in a way. Do you think that there, there, there are similar vibes or attitudes towards use of, use of statistics in, in sports in this manner? Um, I mean, I think statistics in terms and data in terms of understanding your personal performance, understanding how and where you can improve and understanding how you performed on the pitch, court, hillside, car, wherever it is, is absolutely fundamental in professional sport. I mean, there's no, there's not even a debate on that. It's, it's, it's absolutely a requirement. There, how well-informed people are and, and how they look at all of that information, I think is you know, an element of competitive advantage. There's then a separate question, which is around and how much of that should make its way into a fan-facing experience, mm -hmm. and and when does stats and data get in the way of you experiencing what I'm doing on my bike or on a tennis court or on a football field or on a rugby field, and and I think getting that balance right from a fan perspective is is really key um, because data will increasingly inform 
the narrative of the the commentary of the journalistic experience whether that's obvious to you or not as a fan mm-hmm. um, because and you know people will have a point of view and an opinion and you know you'll you know Gary Neville gets paid what he gets paid as an analyst because he's got a very strong point of view and an opinion and he has you know he backs that up with but look here here and here that's why I've got this point of view yeah. he yeah. does it very well there are others that just have an opinion mm-hmm. which is fine and, and great and sometimes you, you know what you want is you want to have the debate and discussion and you want to put somebody up there that might have a different point of view but increasingly those conversations are informed by data now, there's then um, how much of that should be presented graphically or in any other way and sometimes that can be a little bit overload so if you don't know what you're doing with the data it can get in the way so it should always, if you're going to put any numbers up there or you're going to use data to make a point, you know, make sure it's contextual. So mm-hmm. I've just served at 120 miles an hour. And yeah. so, so what? what okay. Is that any good? Do I normally serve at 125 or 130 or mm-hmm. 98? Or what's my average? Yeah. What, what's actually good for this time? Why just serving at 120 miles? How does that help me? Does it help me? Do I win more if I serve faster? It's kind of all of these using, using data and statistics without context and also importantly without simplicity of understanding mm-hmm. is where people make mistakes. So if you put a TV graphic on the screen, if you can't understand what's on that graphic in three seconds, it's wrong. I see what you mean. Because it's not telling a story and it's ultimately, from a fan perspective, from a marketing perspective, always just telling stories. That's all we're doing. So how can you substantiate the story, provide the context, mm-hmm. get it out quickly, make it understand, make it easy to understand, and not get in the way of everything else that you're trying to experience. Yeah. And, and then different sports have different requirements around that. So if you're watching cricket or you're watching baseball, a lot of American sports work well with more detailed statistics and analysis because they've designed their sports in a way that they are chunked up into very bite-sized pieces. Happens to be very good for social media as well, by the way, coincidentally. Um, but you have the opportunity to provide that that analytics. You know, if it's an NFL game, you know, you might you know, a play might be two seconds, yeah. and then you've got thirty seconds at least before they reset for the next one, potentially even longer yeah. if the ball's gone out of play. So, what? How do you fill it? You, got to fill it with something so you fill it with stories based on data and analytics NBA is slightly different because it's a bit back and forth but nonetheless you still got it's broken up baseball you know five hours 100 games a season ba- baseball is, is huge on, on data right and statistics it's all about that I mean I don't really understand what's going on but uh, there's a lot of numbers involved huge amount of numbers um, but if you also think of it in, again in the competitive landscape you know they've got you know their major sports in the US they've got ice hockey they've got baseball mm-hmm. they've got NBA and they've got the NFL you know broadly speaking they they try not to have them overlap but they they do a baseball team will play 100 games a season mm-hmm. so Am I going to tune into it? I mean, I might be the biggest Yankees fan in the world, but am I going to tune in and watch 100 games? That's a pretty dedicated fan. Um, even, you know, 50% of that's, hey, am I going to go to 50 home games a year? That's, you know, that's a pretty understand. That's a big investment of time and, you know, you've got a pretty understanding family 
friends, if that's what you're going to do, go to 50 baseball games a season. So you're not. So you, how do they differentiate and stand out? It's one of the Major League Baseball are one of the big technology innovators. And one of the reasons they're a big technology innovator is how do you cut through, how do you maintain eyeballs on your product when you have that amount of it and you've got to differentiate it? Can we just, you started talking about, you know, stories and the importance of telling a story. To me, in my mind, IBM is still largely associated with the deep blue victory in chess over Garry Kasparov. And keep in mind, I've been grown up in, uh, I grew, grew up in post-Soviet Ukraine. So in Soviet Union, chess was a huge thing. Post-Soviet Ukraine, not as much, but uh, it was still very much a topical point, a big, you know, mental sport. Of, I'm not sure what the politically correct definition of chess is, and I know there's debate whether it's a sport, whether it's not, but let's not get into that. So a lot of people, after first that victory, I think, uh, was a great, I mean, it was a good commercial move for IBM, it was a good move in terms of uh, culture, creating conversations, PR, just great project, very controversial in some parts, but uh, probably not net positive gain for, for the company, right? But uh, a lot of people after that, and especially the chess fans, were saying that something was, it's like something was taken from chess that, that, that wasn't or something was actually given to chess that wasn't really part of chess. So this, they were talking about the data crunching being really behind all the decisions of the machine and the creativity of uh, chess as a, as a game was kind of taken out in that. And some of the romance and some of the connection that people have with chess had been, you know, it's, it's a very, you know, it's a human game. It's one, one v one. You look at the way they look at each other. Just thinking and understand it's a it's it's not it's definitely not a direct analogy, but um, just thinking about the way again just on this point of statistics in tennis, or in any other sport, if a player is really basing their performance largely on the opponent and potentially let's say if it gets you know boring in a way and some people are already saying it gets boring with all the baseline game you know people don't move any you know to the net as much as they used to. Is there is there potential just to dig into this a bit? Because to me, I see the potential of something like this happening. There being too much statistics, there being too much preparation, that kind of two players know already know everything about each other, and then the game can become repetitive in a way. Do you think there is potential for that, or am I just making it up? So if I answered your question with a question. I don't know how many times Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal have played one another, but it's probably quite a few. Yeah, that is true. If they were playing in a competitive fixture at Wimbledon in the quarterfinals, would you go and watch it knowing that they've played each other a lot and it might be boring? I'd definitely watch it. Uh-huh. But they know each other really, really well and they know each other inside out, so, so why would you go? That is true. I guess it's just the... Tennis is not is not really, I mean, obviously there's a big distinction between chess and tennis. A computer yeah. cannot play tennis, but on the other side, let's talk about virtual reality then in sports. And uh, that relates to the technology being able to scale the tournaments, something that I talked about before, you know, a lot of people can tune in, uh, and if, you know, a company does as, as good of a job as IBM does at Wimbledon, then you can feel that you're part of the part of the action and that's you know that's yeah. that's great in any respect whether you end up you know transacting or getting any commercial value for for the company or for the club this is just a good this is just a great thing to do to have people involved and this is good uh, 
just wondering about where you see virtual reality playing out in sports because now while I was saying that you know Federer cannot really play a computer then I was thinking maybe there can be some sort of a simulation where he will be able to do that yeah that, that sounds a bit crazy but okay so can can we can you help me here where do you think this this going and what is the potential even you know looking into 30 years ahead or so I think um you know, f- forecasting 30 years out in technology is not really worth yeah, it yeah the but in, in terms of VR and sport um I'd liken it I liken it a little bit to sort of 10 15 years ago maybe maybe even longer now where there was the first um, um, wireless protocols that could mean that you, you could get content and experiences on your phone. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a huge investment in it and people started sort of creating sort of banking apps and things, or well, they weren't really apps, but you, know, you could log onto your bank and you could do things through, through this interface. The, the trouble with it all was, it wasn't necessarily the technology, it was the hardware. Mm-hmm. That you were looking at, you were trying to interact with your bank on a screen that was a one inch square. It was when Apple came out with something which was actually, no, I've got all of this real estate to play with and I've got more processing power. Now I can deliver an experience which is compelling. The problem wasn't the core connectivity. The problem in the first instance was the hardware. If you look at what's happening with VR now um, in sport, I would say that 90 to 95% of what you're seeing in sport at the moment is brand activation. It's a marketing organization uh, whether directly with a sports business or, or as, uh, as a brand partner of a sports business, activating using VR. So it's put the headset on and come and see inside the changing room. It's put the headset on and come and experience what it's like to be in the front row of a scrum. It's, and I think that the, the problem with that is you're trying to recreate an experience in a virtual reality when it's real. And it's... Yes, I can get some understanding and experience of what it might be like in a front row for England rugby or whether it's wandering around the dressing rooms in an NBA environment. But ultimately, I actually want to be there. Mm-hmm. And also, it's a very insular experience. So I think that if you, if you think about where is it more of a natural experience, it's more virtual reality is more of a natural experience when the reality is not real, where it is truly virtual in a gaming mm-hmm. scenario. And um, I think that that's where the opportunity for VR lies. And I think that's where the great engagement opportunities are in, in eSport. So you know, there's been a recent eSport conference in London, big gaming convention, and you know, there's huge numbers of people that will go and sit in a room and yeah. watch people play a computer game on a great big screen. Now, personally, I can't get my head around it, but I look at my kids and my son will be playing a Nintendo Switch and my two other kids will be looking over his shoulder finding out how he's doing on Splatoon 2 and they'll do that for half an hour and I look at them and go, why, why, why are you doing that? But nonetheless, they are and, and they will and people do. And, and, but I think if you think of the VR opportunities, if you think about, okay, how can I as a fan live my vicarious existence of being a top gamer how can I bring that to life? I can bring that to life because if I put a headset on, if I put a VR headset on, I can experience that game that you're playing. Mm-hmm. Now, if you, if you, if you take the, the stands, you know, you've got the physical environment of the empathy, the emotional environment of being part of the experience because I'm sitting next to other people, combine that with the virtual reality experience of being within, within the field of play, whatever that field is. Mm-hmm. 
and then think about actually also as a brand how could i how could i activate in that virtual experience you bring all of those things together i think that is going to be a really interesting one to watch over the next five years as to how esports and virtual reality and you know, the gaming environment all come together open and open up new brand opportunities and the investment that goes with that i think that's going to be very interesting to see mm -hmm. i think also with esports I am not a big gamer myself, but then I see, I mean, undoubtedly there is huge opportunity and huge upside potentially to actually doing something around esports for a living. So what I'm seeing a lot is that uh, parents are not really too thrilled with their children playing computer games too much, right? I mean, obviously there's many problems with that, but then I think the reality is that there is going to be a whole industry around esports. Similarly to, for example, um, I like tennis a lot. I'm not really cut out to be a professional player, but let's say, you know, I can still go and work, you know, with Babla during the championship. So I'm still in the industry, you know, perhaps similar to you, you're a big sports sports fan, right? And uh, you also like business and technology. So you kind of combine the two and got, you know, pretty much an, an ideal job for all of my peers probably. So then do you think with esports there is also kind of potential and uh, in in that kind of sense of it actually being an industry and there being, you know, jobs and, you know, actual salaries and companies, not just, you know, necessarily being a player or, you know, the world Dota or Fortnite championship, but just, you know, being an agent, uh, you know, being in charge of online retail shop for this Fortnite gaming channel and... Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, there's, there's a lot of opportunities, I think, for that, that business area to grow. Um, you know, my son's just left his primary school and the yearbook, they all have a photo taken with a light box, which is what you're going to be when you grow up. And I think two or three of them either had professional gamer or game developer mm -hmm. out of 26. Mm -hmm. um, a few of them had professional footballer. Um, but but it was a the, it was probably a fifty fifty balance between the professional footballers and those that wanted to get into gaming and game development. Um, you know, people will latch onto that. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's certainly one to watch. Um, you know, back to your point you made earlier around is chess a sport? You know, is is gaming e gaming is it a sport? I don't know. You, you could have quite a, quite a long debate about that. Um, I know I've got some friends who've got some polar views on it, but, um, but nonetheless, it's, you know, it's a reality that's coming, if not already here. Mm -hmm. And then do you think, uh, just how do, how do you feel about it in general? Because the experience of, of playing esports is pretty much sedentary, kind of, for now. I mean, obviously there are chances to kind of move around if it's AR or VR kind of augmented. But um, do you think, just in, on a general note, any kind of health and well-being and... Uh, concerns over the ability of people to socialize for, for example because sports are bringing people together in many different ways it's physically it's you know for example in pubs and bars and watching at home but um, there is much more potential and much more sense for those esports to make it a really insular and potentially lonely experience do you think there is any any concerns um yeah i mean anything that that drives you to sit down and not move for hours on end is you know, inherently not good for your health. One could argue that sitting in an office for eight hours a day and not doing anything is not good for your health. Um, but you know, I, I was very lucky in that I was quite sporty as a kid 
I did a lot of exercise. Um, I play competitive sport to a pretty high level and I, it's given me a huge amount and um, from a health perspective and from a social perspective. Um, and I would strongly want my kids to have that same opportunity and experience. I think, but you know, gaming and, and using screens more is you know it's a reality it's you know people will increasingly want to do it i think as with anything in life whether it's eating ice cream or donuts or gaming or whatever you know everything in moderation you know if you're going to spend eight hours a day gaming and that's your entire social life you know ultimately i don't think that's a good thing for you and i don't think you'd find many professionals that would say that it is um not that i'm a medical professional but you know, if you're playing an hour of it a day, and then you're going and running around outside, and you're reading a book, and you're, you know, you're eating your greens and all the rest of it, then um, you know everything in moderation. All right, Sam. So just um, if we could go back to Wimbledon for a sec, uh, because I just discovered in my notes something that I want to talk about, but I forgot to ask about it. So obviously there is a big uh, chatbots is a big topic yeah. now. Um, could you talk about your experience with uh, delivering? and executing it, you know, what, what I think and from what my friends actually are saying, quite a successful chatbot at Wimbledon and just the the technology in general and where you see it going. Yeah, I mean, the, the philosophy around the, the chatbot was we um, was twofold. We, we had a chatbot from 2017, uh, which was called um, Ask Fred, um, after Fred Perry, um, because the, there's a statue on site of Fred Perry and um, it's kind of location to go and meet. And the idea behind that chapel was if you're coming to Wimbledon within the app, you could ask questions around your day. So it's kind of an on-site concierge. Um, and obviously we're conscious that not everybody gets the opportunity to come to Wimbledon and you might still want to have an interaction and, and ask questions. So the, as always, thinking about how can you extend the, the on-site physical experience into a, a purely off-site and digital one. Um, the other driver behind it was increasingly, um, whilst there are social media platforms like Facebook for old people like me or um, Instagram or Snapchat or whatever, there's also a huge amount of messaging that goes on. So, you know, I follow my 13-year-old on Instagram. Mm. Um, I know she's constantly on it because I can see she's constantly on it, but she doesn't post anything. She just uses it as a messaging platform. WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, various other messaging. So um, as a social media um, digital marketing team, you know, we can't see that conversation. We know it's going on, but there's a huge amount of conversation going on. So the, the, the challenge we were trying to answer was how can we put content into a messaging platform that will be still Wimbledon quality and provide an opportunity to interject into some of those conversations that might be going on around Wimbledon but also drive people then to interact with the Wimbledon digital platforms. And that's where the Facebook Messenger chatbot came in. So it was designed to be very simple in first interaction. So you know, what are the things that people are interested in about Wimbledon? Predominantly it's what's the score? Um, what's going on now? And I'm interested in particular players. So those are the three options you got right from the outset when you when you engage with Wimbledon and then you had the opportunity to subscribe to content so you could follow particular players you then get pushed particular you get pushed content um, and you, you also had an opportunity to um, do, do ask questions which was then backed off into the on-site chatbot so it was a combination of a messenger solution um, and, and the functionality of the messenger backed off into a chatbot to provide a more cohesive and integrated experience so there was 
we, we thought as it, of it as, as we always do with a, how can I access an audience where they want to engage with Wimbledon? What are the particular use cases for that audience in that location? And then how do we use the AI capabilities we've got and the data we've got to, to surface that? Makes sense. And are you going to carry it through to you know, the years to come? Yeah, so it's it's a it's a learning system. It's AI. So um, you know, Watson will be churning through all of the questions that it's been asked to enhance how it responds and to help us also understand around. You know, were lots of people asking for X, Y, and Z, and that wasn't available as a function or wasn't available as an answer? Okay, so so what do we do about that? So we use the questions as dis, you know direct consumer feedback into the next design loop as we're looking to enhance it for the next year. That actually makes sense also with the. Uh, work in retail that I've done for Wimbledon because I remember um, quite, I mean, relatively, I think several, several years ago Wimbledon introduced the uh, electric fans because um, a lot of the times customers would ask for the fans and then we didn't have fans in that year. We sold out very, very, very quickly in the first two days or so. So then for the next championships, I was like, oh, there's a lot of fans and then now we have enough for the whole championship. So it's basically... It happens, Wimbledon happens once a year and you're taking the intel and now with AI based capabilities it's it's really much more thorough and much more contextualized and then you're carrying it through to the next year and then this is this is kind of is this a fair summary of the of the process from a technology point of view yeah I mean we're always you know, there were customer surveys there is you know the feedback we get through the app and the websites um, and then there's the you know, monitoring of the industry, both sports industry and other industries. So you know, we'll look at on the chatbot, for example, you know, we've done chatbots with Vodafone, we've done chatbots with banks. You know, we'll look at how those are working and how those are operating and how they're designed as part of the process for how we're designing ours for, within a sporting context. Because there's no reason why Wimbledon can't learn from a bank. Yeah. I mean, I think chatbots with banks is hugely useful, to be honest, just from a, on the consumer standpoint. Uh, what do you think about uh, implementing voice and voice as a medium of expression and medium of consumption as, as audio? Because there, there, there was a clear move from voice being radio to video being TV. So then the radio kind of died, I mean, really, on a, on, at a scale that it was and the, with the attention that it had, it really kind of died in a way. And uh, now it's kind of having an upsurge in terms of ads because it became so cheap because no one's actually listening but that's that's a whole another topic where do you think because now there is a big demand at least from what i'm seeing in this kind of why i'm doing the podcast for passive consumption so you can listen to audio and you can be doing something else or you know anything you want basically you're passively consuming the content and then you can go about your daily activities where do you put if, you know, because obviously you have the written content, you have the blogs, you have the video, which is what tennis is really, and then you have the radio audio coverage too. And um, this is actually, you know, when I'm uh, commuting and things of that nature, I always listen to, during the champs, I listen to the audio rather than watching the video because I don't want the, the buffer and, and stuff like that. Just if, if I give you those three ways of communicating whatever you want to the consumer, be it a sporting event or otherwise, how do you think about the three? I mean, they've all got a role to play. I mean, um, you know, Wimbledon have their own radio channel, so they broadcast uh, Wimbledon, uh, the Wimbledon channel, as it's called, is a stream service on digital, but it's also a radio um, channel. And I think last year they had 42 million listeners to their radio channel, which is pretty good when you consider, you know, they're a they're an event 
um, uh, those, I don't know what that would be a day, but that's a couple of million a day, two or three million a day, which is pretty good when you think, you know, Radio 2's flagship um, breakfast programme, I think has about seven million or something. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a pretty compar good comparable figure. Um, so a lot of people are still using radio. I think, you know, we're sitting here doing a podcast. Increasingly, people are consuming it through that. So I think, you know, the podcast essentially is the same on-demand version as you've got in the, in the, in the video um, consumption area. Um, there's probably more to, more to come in that space, I think. Um, but yeah, they've all got a part to play, I think would be my summary. I don't, you, you can't necessarily just discount one and focus purely on another if you're an event like Wimbledon. I think you've got to look to serve them all. But you, what you've also got to make sure is you're not just doing them just all because you think you should. Mm -hmm. If you're going to do them, you've got to do them right. You've got to do them to the right level of quality and, and they've got to really be focused and targeted on their audience. Um, if you're not able to do that from a financial perspective or a resource perspective, then it's going to focus on where most of your audience is and really do that well. That makes sense. And I, I mean, this is to me, this is huge because I see, you know, many big brands and big companies decide, right, we're going to go digital, we're going to go social media, and then they kind of have one video and they just distribute it everywhere without actually making it tailored to the audience. Myself, for example, Max on LinkedIn is different from Max on Instagram. I don't consume the same way, I don't even interact the same way. I'm two different people because there are two different platforms. One I'm in a suit, another one I'm, I'm kind of yeah. in shorts. And this is, I think, what what is great about what IBM's done with Wimbledon, and especially I was looking at it closely this year, is that it has actually tailored the experiences I have on Twitter are different from the experiences I have on Instagram. And one of the things that I noticed is uh, obviously this year there was World Cup at the same time with Wimbledon. Yeah. Um, just wondering from, from your position, how were you thinking about actually maybe leveraging some of the success of the England national team at the World Cup and what were you doing in that direction? Yeah, so you know, from, a, from a Wimbledon digital perspective and social media perspective, you know, whenever you go up against a World Cup or a Euros, which is every two years in the cycle, it's hard. Um, you know, there's a lot of eyeballs elsewhere. Um, and ultimately, you stand or fall on the quality of the, what's going on on the court, on the pitch. You know, this year with England doing so well and getting unexpectedly so far, um, you know, a lot of attention was on football. From, from an IBM marketing perspective, we kind of, we looked at it and we had a conversation which was, how do we acknowledge it without going head to head? So in a, in a marketing and advertising battle, IBM focused around Wimbledon versus Coke mm -hmm. activating around the World Cup. You know, we're not going to spend the same amount of money. We're not going to produce the same kind of content. I'm not going to buy 27 TV slots in order to get my brand out there, and it's just not going to happen. But nonetheless, the football's happening, so how should we think about that and, and um, try and combat it? And what we did was we actually decided to link tennis mm -hmm. to other sports. So we actively, we'd done some research and some work where we'd analysed 25 years plus of media and written content about the great Wimbledon champions over the last couple of decades, uh, which we'd done to uncover what does it take to be a great champion. Yeah. Um, but what we then did was we said, okay, well, what are the similarities between those great champions and their attributes with other sports? Mm -hmm. um, so the, the link to football that we had was 
what's the similarity and, and what could one sport learn from another between what's it like serving for a match on centre court versus taking a penalty in a penalty shootout? Because England, when I was doing the research for it, you know, up until this tournament, um, had gone out of 50% um, of their last tournament since 1990 on penalty shootouts. 50% on penalty shootouts. I mean, that's just ridiculous. And you talk to footballers, you listen to footballers talking, a lot of whom were in the run-up to the championship, uh, into, the, into the World Cup. And they're saying, you can't practice it, you can't practice what it's like. And I was going, well, you've gone out of 50% of the tournaments, you need to work out how. Just saying I can't is not good enough. Yeah. Work it out. Um, so what we then looked at was we looked at Serena Williams because she has the best, in our analysis, using our AI and our data, um, the best performance under pressure in terms of serving at match points and serving to save break points and serving at those key moments. And she obviously has a lot more practice because every time she's serving to save a set or serving to save a game or serving to stay in a match, she's effectively taking a penalty shootout. Yeah. So she has a lot of opportunity to practice. But nonetheless, it was an interesting narrative and positioning for us. So we created some video content linking tennis greats and their attributes that link to other sports. So we did it for football, and we did some around durability, with uh, again with Serena, but also Tiger Woods, um, who happened to then you know come and have a storming time at the British Open, um, and we were able to activate around that, and we were able to you know we planned our content to go out um, the first game after the group stages uh, for mm -hmm. when England were playing, mm -hmm. and it just so happened they went into a penalty shootout, so it was kind of you know we planned for it to happen, and then it happened, and it was all. Quite nice. So. Yeah, because um, yeah, I thought that was really smart because it's. I'm guessing going into head-to-head -head battle with the World Cup when England's in the quarter-final is, is an uphill. Yeah, you're not. You're not going to don't fight it. Go with the flow. This is what I and, was and create a narrative link. You know, come back. We're talking about stories. I'm creating stories with data and using AI to do it. That's what I'm doing. Um, but it's create a story around sport that links football to tennis in, an, in a way that is interesting to both parties because one of the things that Wimbledon themselves have done with their own data segmentation around their audience is they've segmented around six broad fan types. The largest one is a general sports fan and that general sports fan's first go-to sport will not be tennis. Mm -hmm. It will likely be football. Yeah, because what was interesting is uh, also coinciding with the World Cup, there was uh, a lot of theatre and uh, I kept seeing the news that people are checking their phones and checking the score during the plays and then um, you know during the plays it's, and the plays can go on for I'm guessing two hours or so without <coughs> without a break so that the a lot of the theatres were basically banning the phones in a very aggressive yeah. way and the actors would even uh, pause their act and then say just just get off the phone or try to signal to the audience because it's kind of distracting everyone and I thought it's difficult to you know when when it's England and it's playing in the quarterfinals and okay Understandably, theatre is very traditional, you're not supposed to be uh, distracted, but there is no way you can compete for the attention this way. So maybe you could you know, try to, at least maybe in your social channels, maybe similarly to what um, Wimbledon did. So for example, I was looking at the football hashtags and then I saw Wimbledon. And then this is how I actually went on to check what's going on at Wimbledon because I kind of forgot about it watching football. So I thought this was just a great, yeah, just a great idea. And, uh, applauding on the strategy behind it. Uh, Sam, thanks a lot for your time. Last question. And I, um, I think your, your position, as I mentioned before, is a, an interesting mix of uh, something that a lot of my audience are young professionals and students. 
and then uh, you know for young professionals and students there is a pressure of you know getting a good job whether it's you know in any industry really a yeah. uh, good established job but also we have a lot of hobbies and things on the side so that for a lot of my friends and I know that for sure and I've actually asked them before doing this podcast something that you are doing at the intersection of your hobby and something that makes a lot of you know commercial sense is a uh, is is really a sweet spot from so many different perspectives so if you could give advice and also take it into account what you're seeing with the uh, you know development of technology and how much it means for career development and some of the dem- demographic shifts in the way careers are done what would your advice be to people who want to break into the uh, let's say sports consultancy technology industry and to just university and school graduates in general um, so, so my very first simple point of guidance would be do what you enjoy um, net in the first instance that might sound very simple but when you caveat it by um, you know, I've, I've got you know, don't get me wrong I've got a good job I'm very lucky to do what I do but the question you need to ask yourself when you're focusing on do what you enjoy is what are you prepared to give up in order to do it mm-hmm. so if you think about what is your dream job and if your dream job is working in the commercial department at Wimbledon for sake of argument you've got to think about how are you going to differentiate your CV against the, I can guarantee you, several hundred that will be on the desk of the person that's doing the interviewing. So what are the component parts of what that job needs and how are you going to differentiate yourself in order to make sure that your CV, even if it doesn't rise to the top, is at least going to be read? I heard this on this point, I heard this saying, and I just know it's so powerful to me, it goes, different is better than better. And I was just thinking that applies to so many things. Mm. And you've got to, you know, if you think about what the commercial department of Wimbledon will need, you need, you don't necessarily need to love tennis. You need to have commercial heads, you need to have project management skills, you need to have good client relationship skills. Yes, you need to do that in the industry sector, but those elements and those skills are transferable. Um, You know, sport as a business area is very small. There are some big brands, very small businesses, you know, I don't know how many people there are working at the Manchester United biggest um, football club by turnover globally. Yeah. Say four, five hundred tops. Mm-hmm. Small business. There aren't many jobs there. So how are you going to differentiate? How do you build your CV? And what's your path from probably A to B to C to D to E? Not not A to E. Yeah. So don't expect there's a sense of entitlement that you're going to go from being in the university to suddenly working at Man United. Um, why are you going to differentiate? And then, but the most important thing you need to ask yourself is what are you prepared to give up in order to achieve that path? Truly give up. And, so, and then how, how, how do you really, how do you know that though? So if you say, um, say the job is the job at Man United or the commercial department at Wimbledon, you might need to go and do an internship. You might need to go and um, come out of the business and come back in. You might need to go and do a really rubbish job somewhere for six months in order to. You might need to work um, without a lot of money because sport, wonderful place to work, doesn't pay very well. Um, so if your aspirations is to drive around in a Maserati and live in a huge house, there are very very few people that earn that kind of money in sport unless you're a football agent. 
So, you know, truly ask yourself if it means going and doing a master's somewhere, if it means going and doing an internship, if it means going and scrubbing the toilet somewhere, you know, whatever it is, are you prepared, what are you prepared to give up to do it? That might mean moving, it might mean whatever. But if you can't, if the answer when you really question yourself is, mm, I'm not sure, it's the wrong job. Because in order for you to get into the sports business, which is very, t very tight, you need to think about that career path and that plan. And how are you going to really actively target each step in the journey? What are you prepared to give up in order to do it? Because you can bet your bottom dollar somebody is. Mm -hmm. Makes sense, because that also puts you, you know, logically in the right position to yeah. succeed. Also, like to me, I think there is a variable of talent and then there is a var variable of right, sacrifice. If you are ready to make disproportionate sacrifice, then maybe you can put yourself in front of the person who has more yeah. talent. But then if a person has more talent and they're ready to make the sacrifices, you know, that's, that's probably not the best. So I mean, when I was trying to get myself in, into this role, I was looking in within and around IBM and keen to get involved in sport. And I got involved in the Wimbledon program as a tour guide. And I did that for three years and I was kind of shadowing somebody else. And I was thinking about, I hope this job doesn't come off. I really want to get into sports. So I was at the stage where I had two young kids, I had a mortgage. I was looking at going to four days a week in order to do an MSc in sport. And I was having to make a decision, which is do I put my mortgage at risk, take a financial hit in order to do that course, in order to make myself more likely and more, have more potential to go in, if not into IBM somewhere else. That, when I talk about what are you prepared to give up, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about are you prepared to put your mortgage and your family's well-being for the next five years at risk in order to take that opportunity? And if the answer is no, find something else. Okay, great. This is this is amazing advice. I think one of the best I've heard um, on the show. Uh, Sam, applauding you on your work. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. I will for the listeners. I will link up the stuff that we talked about uh, in the description so that we, you can check all kinds of things out. Uh, Sam, thank you very much thank for you. your time and thank you very much for hosting me, guys. And uh, yeah, good luck and until the next one. Thank you very much. Wow, what an ending it was and tons of respect going out to Sam Sadden for his career success. Now, just before you run off, uh, please check out the IBM Wimbledon collaboration on ibm.com forward slash Wimbledon. Uh, I know it's a long time before the tennis tournament starts, but you might as well uh, get yourselves ready. Also, if you want to see what Sam Sadden's up to, probably the best place would be to go to Twitter. And his handle is Sam underscore Sadden. That's S-A-M underscore S-E-D-D-O-N. As always, if you want to see what I am up to, it's MaxTalksAI.com and MaxOClemenko on Twitter and Instagram. If you want more information about anything we talked about in the interview, please go to MaxTalksAI.com forward slash Sam. This is, a, this is one of the recent innovations of mine and I feel like some of the interviews are pretty packed with content and I would like to elaborate on some of that as well as including some of the links to stuff that uh, my guest or myself were referring to. Again, special thanks are going out to IBM and IBM's marketing team for making this possible. Hope you're having a good day, a good week, a good month, a good year and uh, until the next episode. Thank you very much. Bye.